Welcome to the Lee Side Lives podcast. My guest today is Canice Kennedy, sports psychologist, predominantly based here in Cork. And Canice is going to be speaking to us about his uh, work as a sports psychologist, the role of psychology in sport, uh, and indeed as well how the last couple of weeks and months have gone for him and working with athletes during lockdown, etc. Canice, a very good afternoon and thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks for inviting me. First off, how did you end up working in the area of sports psychology would you say that sport has always been an important part of your life from an early age obviously i, I played sport like many people play different sports and uh, throughout my 20s and 30s I, I played soccer but i also coached played a bit of golf and tennis so i did other things and i swam as well but i suppose coming to uh, the age of 40 i was thinking about my long term and i decided that i didn't really want to work in business for the rest of my life I felt at that stage that the sports world was changing. There was huge developments in Irish sport. There was definitely far more jobs available, both in coaching and administration. And the, the course in Waterford, the Sports Psychology Master's degree in Waterford, just started um, in the early 90s. So I saw that and I obviously I knew a lot about sports psychology from, from being a coach and having done coach education. So I knew it was a, a developing area. So I decided to take a career break I went to Waterford, I did the course and ultimately left my job and became a full-time sports psychologist. And it's something, I get the sense that it's a job that you love and even referring to it as a job is probably something you don't do because it's more, it's your passion, I guess, more than your job, is it? But I don't have a job in the sense that most people have a job, either self-employed or working for somebody else. And what I have is a portfolio of activities. So I have three or four different activities, including my client work, including part-time lecturing, including a small bit of, of um, well-being work that I do. So it's the combination of all these factors put together that provides the income that, that I live on. Diet, exercise and sleep are probably, well, undoubtedly, they are the three most important things uh, when it comes to performance, whether you're an athlete or not. Uh, the area of psychology has probably been overlooked as well in the past in terms of sport. From your studies, from your portfolio shall we say how important is the role of psychology in sport canis when compared with these other factors well if you take the four pillars of sport that i would always talk about is technical tactical physical and mental mm. now at the various levels of sport participation sport fun sport right through up performance sub elite and elite the different if you like elements different pillars become at various t- stages more important. So if you're running a, a junior B um, Gaelic football team or a junior soccer team, the, probably the key factor is the physical fitness. So if you can get your players 20% fitter, that'll have a huge impact on performance. But the further you go up that pathway towards elite sport, the more all those three levels, technical, tactical, and physical, there's very little difference between those levels. So at the more uh, like sub-elite performance and elite level of sport, the mental part becomes more and more important. In other words, it's possible to get, if you like, larger, if you like, performance improvements with, with sports psychology or mental fitness at a high level, you'll get at a local level. Second issue I'd say about it is that sports psychology is a bigger factor in individual sport and team sport in the sense that if you, for instance, have confidence issue or, or um, concentration issue or um, uh, an anxiety, pre-performance anxiety issue, 
as an individual that can impact dramatically in your performance. Now, if you're one of 11 players in a soccer team or 15 players in the Gaelic team, that may not impact the overall performance as dramatically. So it's individual sport where much of the work is focused. Now, there are benefits in team sport, of course, as well. And on that point, do you approach each athlete differently then or are there common teams that you work off? We'll say if you're working with a, a golfer on a Monday, a boxer on a Tuesday, a runner on a Wednesday, is it entirely different with each person, each sport? Well, I remember listening to Lee Morgan, who is a sports uh, coaching educator, saying many that the coach Johnny at basketball, you have to know Johnny and you have to know basketball. And, and I take the same principle into sports psychology. Of course, there are underlying psychological principles that are at play, but ultimately to help somebody really, really help them on a long-term basis, you have to get to know them, who they are, what, motiv- what motivates them, what makes them different from the other athletes. So getting to know the person is key. Of course, knowing the sport can help, but I do a lot of work in sports that I have never experienced before. And while I like to learn about those sports as I get involved, it's not the key factor. The personal factors are more important. And are there sports that you love more than others? Like, What are your favourite sports, Canis? Well, I played soccer, so soccer is obviously a sport that's, that's dear to my heart. Soccer is one of the sports that hasn't adapted as quickly to other elite level sports in terms of of using sports psychologists which is which is a pity really but i think in if you take the premier league for instance um, um five or six years ago very few of the clubs would have admitted or stated that they had sports psychologists on the staff now in fact they did but didn't like to talk about it many do have staff working with the academy players Few have staff working with the elite level players, the, the first team players, which is which is rather a pity. But in my work, I've done a lot of work in the GEA, naturally, because the GEA is very strong in, the, in this part of the country. And I do a small bit of work in, 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 um, in golf, which I think as a sport, more than anything else, is made for sports psychology because it's different than lots of other sports. And then you can talk about the areas like athletics or rowing that I've done a lot of work on. So it's, I've worked across the board. Let's take soccer as an example. If you have an, an average enough soccer player, can the right mentality, that positive mindset, make an average player a, a top-class player, would you say, Canis? No, I wouldn't, no. no. However, I, I do use this saying that it is important to me. A player with first-class mindset and second-class ability will always outperform the player with second-class mindset and first-class ability. So you have to have the ability in the first place. Of that, there's no doubt. But there's no doubt that some players can go out on the big occasion and perform, and some players can't. And for me, the the value of sports psychology in many ways uh, is to provide players with the ability to perform consistently. I mean, I frequently hear coaches saying to me, Canis, I have a great player. He's brilliant on Tuesday, he's brilliant on Thursday, and he's awful on Sunday morning in the match. What's wrong with him? And that's a performance issue. So it's not about ability. So it's about, now, if he's a donkey on Tuesday and a donkey on Thursday, there's no point sending him to me. I'm not going to turn him into a great player. When it comes to injury then, can psychology play a part in that when when an athlete is on the sidelines? Can there their attitude towards that injury setback, I suppose, limit the time frame that they spend on the, on the injury table, on the injury table or on the sidelines, Canis? Yes and no. 
I think the attitude that you take to to fitness recovery and rehab is absolutely essential. If you take the view, oh my God, here I go again, it's always me, there's no doubt that that can lead to a lack of input into your rehab and it can set you back, it can make the process slower. My one worry uh, in the current elite level process of recovering from injuries is that players tend to be coming back far too quickly from injuries. For instance, if you take the ACL, which is a very common injury these days, unfortunately, for different reasons, players are coming back in six months. Whereas if you know five years ago when ACLs started becoming more common, it was a 12-month recovery process. Now, I believe players have been pushed back probably too quick. And then many people are thinking, oh, look, if we can get the psychology right, then we can fast track the, the physical. I don't believe that that is possible. When you look at the Premier League as well, we've seen lots of mind games between numerous managers and in the big boxing fights as well in the build-up, lots of mind games ongoing. Do these tend to have an impact on the outcome of a match or a fight, do you think? Uh, in the short answer to that is no. In many ways, I think that the mind games are literally just games. They're actually, it's more about generating um, column inches in newspapers and, and, and sort of... Um, sort of quick clips on Sky News or Sky Sports News for managers. Now, at times, and there are one or two managers who use them more than others, who try and annoy opposition managers and get in the heads of, of opposition players. But quite frankly, at that level of sport, it, it's, it's largely irrelevant. Now, if you take it about a sport like boxing, again, while some of the pre-fight antics is pantomime and it's about selling seats and all the rest, there's no doubt that some, let's say, boxers are trying to get into the head of others because it's a 1v1 situation. Get them annoyed, get them over aroused, get them upset by, by passing personal comments. But I think at the highest level, it's, it's largely ineffective. So Alex Ferguson, Jose Mourinho, they would have had as much success without all the crap in the build-up to games, you think? Absolutely. Now, there's no doubt if, if you take refereeing, for instance, and refereeing is, is, a, is a very interesting debate at many, many levels. It's something that we always seem to have debated um, for, you know, for many, many years. And despite VAR, it hasn't gone away. Um, and certainly Ferguson was one of those that, you know, tried to get in the minds of referees, particularly around issues like timekeeping. You know where he um, he deliberately tried to upset referees. Now managers are largely discouraged and are in danger of of discipline if if they do those the sort of antics that Ferguson got away with. Areas such as mindfulness and meditation are gathering momentum. I think over the last. 10, 20 years. It's something I'm studying myself at the moment, and I find it fascinating as well. Are mindfulness and meditation? Do you bring those into your routine when you're dealing with athletes? I do. And I do for this reason. First of all, I hate the term mindfulness and I hate the term meditation. Okay. And when I speak about those areas, I talk about people taking five minute break, sitting down with a cup of tea, whether in a job is the performance issue or whether they're sports people and taking some time to do some deep breathing. And if you like closing their mind for a few minutes. Okay. Like this idea of meditation, mindfulness, give people the impression that you get into the lotus position and you, you know, you put your hands in the um, deep meditation position and you almost levitate. It's about taking a break. And for me, particularly around uh, elite athletes, one of the challenges for elite athletes is they don't have jobs and study and other factors to switch off with. And oftentimes they're, they're thinking about sport 24-7. 
and in the build-up to matches, the weekend, or competitions, or races, they spend all of their time thinking about it. And if you do that, it drains energy. It actually impacts negatively on performance. So I love the idea of encouraging athletes to actually take a break, be able to go and sit down for five minutes and daydream. Now, I know we can use meditation and mindfulness to be a bit more specific around the concentration and concentrate on a factor. But even sitting there, allowing random thoughts to come in, let them drift off again, that ability to switch off powerful aid to performance. Because yes. one of the factors I find, particularly with young athletes, is that they get to game time and they're physically and mentally shattered because they've spent so much of the build-up thinking about going over things in their head when really what they're doing is should be, is, should be doing is conserving energy so they can give up their best in the performance. Yes, now, the more yes. mature athletes have learned over time and over many years of, of, of being at a high level how they cope best with the situation. Mm-hmm. But deep breathing is, is a powerful tool. Yes, deep breathing and, and living in the moment and uh, focusing on the present, isn't it? And from my recent study, I've come across the, the negativity bias of the brain, that, that area. And when it comes to sport, the example you might use is winning four games, losing one and focusing on the bad result. Or if, if we'll say if nine journalists have a positive review for you or a positive rating and one doesn't, you'll focus on the negative again. How do you overcome that? The biggest factor that we all have with our brain is that we do have a negativity, if you like, setup. Now, it's probably done over many, many, many years, thousands of years of evolution, and it's from a safety point of view. So you never walk out on the street without looking because a car could come and knock you down. So all the time we're looking at a worst case scenario. Okay. Now, the problem about negative self-talk is that it's powerful. Negative self-talk works. And for the athlete says, oh, my God, I can't beat her. I can't run faster than her. We never beat that team. Those thoughts are powerful because they work. They stop you performing at your best. They inhibit high level performance. Now, if you take the opposite view, we can win. We can beat them. There's no guarantee of success. So positive self-talk doesn't necessarily work. But negative self-talk is powerful. So the words I can't are largely debilitating in terms of your performance level. So what we need to do is, is, is teach or educate young athletes, and I'm talking about at 12 to 15, to go into a performance situation expecting to be able to perform at their best. For every negative self-talk, it takes three positive thoughts to kill it. Yes. Now, unfortunately, what we tend to be is fair. We're going into an important, let's say an important tennis match, and you're looking at the opponent, and you say, Oh, he's a fantastic server, but I'm a great returner of serve. He's very quick on his feet, okay? But I'm strategically a much better player than him, okay? He's very wise, but I'm younger, okay? So what you've done is create a a pro and a con, but it's perfectly balanced. It's an equal amount of positive and negative thoughts. And in that situation, the negative thoughts win out. What you need to do is overload on the positive stuff to quieten the negative part of your brain to almost create a level playing pitch so that the negativity doesn't impact on performance. Yes, I understand. So, for instance, say that tennis player, you're playing somebody and you've never beaten them, but you know you're getting close to them. Okay. Now, if you say to yourself, my God, 
I've never beaten him. That's a negative thought that impacts badly on your performance. If you say, I haven't beaten him yet, and suddenly that changes the way your brain thinks it. Because you know you're getting towards, you're getting closer every time. But yet, changes everything for you. And that's what we need to do is teach our athletes and our players to, to, to uh, switch off that negative button. Mid-race in a marathon, shall we say. It mightn't be an elite level athlete, but there's a term hitting the wall. Does your mindset, I suppose, foc- not focusing on the next five miles, but focusing on the here and now? Absolutely. So like... When you run a race for, for 26 miles over two or three hours, there's going to be crisis moments in that. Just like a footballer over a 90-minute match or a 60-minute GA game. There's going to be times when you're behind, you're losing, you've made a mistake. There's crisis moments. During those crisis moments, you have to make sure that your brain does not have a negative impact on the future performance. So if you're saying to yourself after 16, 17 miles, oh my God, uh, I'm going through a bad spell, my muscles are tightening up, oh my God, I'm getting tired, I have no chance of finishing. Straight away, you're actually stopping the ability of yourself to finish the race. So the crisis um, strategy might be positive self-talk, focus on getting through the next kilometer, focus on following that athlete who's 20 yards in front of you. I'm not going to lose him. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to stay with him. So suddenly it's all in the now. Then you find, bloody hell, I can do this. I'm, I'm going to survive. And then you can focus more on getting on with the race. Yes. Since lockdown uh, came into being earlier this year, because it's been a very strange year, uh, the sporting calendar has been thrown into disarray. But we do have sport now again, thankfully. Do you find that you've been busier since the lockdown? Can us have more and more athletes been getting in touch with you? No. I'm literally in lockdown. Okay. The simple fact is that the vast majority of my clients are at non-elite level. Now, obviously, I have a few clients who are planning to go to the Olympics this year. I have a few clients who are inter-county GA footballers who are internationals in their sport who you know play at a high level. I have those clients, but most of my clients are non-elite. Okay. And the simple fact is there's no sport going on, so they don't need me. Now, in fairness, one or two of my elite athletes have contacted me just to say, like, you know, what's going on and what do you think about the future and stuff like that. And for instance, the Olympics is a problem. Now, in fairness, the difference is the guys who are going to the Olympics, they think differently than maybe none of these athletes do. So, in fact, they didn't necessarily need me. They needed me just to confirm everything would be okay, you know, and that they were thinking the right way. Um, anyone who is interested in, in getting your advice or using your services, Canis, can check out your website, CanisKennedy.com. Uh, but moving slightly away from, from the area of sports psychology, you've also worked as a head coach uh, with some sports teams. What were those experiences like for you? Well, in terms of becoming a sports psychologist, my coaching experience was invaluable. Um, I coached for a, a good a good number of years before I, am, I became a sports psychologist. I was the head coach at UCC Soccer Club for about 10 years, and I was at the Irish University's team coach, and I was coached to the Irish team at the World Student Games, and they were hugely beneficial. But also at that time, I was studying for a degree in sports coaching, and that's where I first came across sports psychology. So I had started using sports psychology in my coaching, and 
it was a natural development for me to go on then and become a sports psychologist. Before our chat, I actually came across uh, an egg talk that you did a couple of years back on YouTube um, about the area of sleep, which I found really fascinating. That's probably something that not just athletes, but people in general probably overlook. Is it the, the area of sleep and how important it is in their life? Well, for me, sleep is one of the fundamental key factors in life. And people who sleep well generally do better in life. And unfortunately, in the modern era, sleep is a problem, has become a problem because people are sleeping less uh, than, say, 20 or 30 years ago before the Internet. And uh, so sleep is a factor. Now, in sport, um, I have done a lot of work with athletes and players around the area of sleep. And many, many athletes say to me, well, I can never sleep the night before the big race or the big match. Is that going to cause me a problem? Now, a wise coach once said to me that the most important night's sleep is the night before the night before the match. And, and I like that statement because for the most part, one bad night's sleep won't interfere with your performance on the day. It's better to have a full night's sleep, of course. But sleeping is something that we need to regulate, both for, for work schedules, but also for, for sporting schedules. So I'm a big believer in the importance of sleep, yes. How do you keep fit? Do you run in, in road races when they were happening before the lockdown? Were marathons something you were training for or...? Well, this year I was going to do the Lee Swim. So okay. I, was, I was training for the Lee Swim. So I was up, to, I did, I did uh, one kilometre non-stop just before lockdown. So I was on track. My swimming coach had me on track to swim the 2K in July. And unfortunately, I'll have to postpone that target until next year. But at the moment, I'm back in the gym the last three weeks. So I'll probably go to the gym five or six times this week. So I'm, I'm glad to be back doing something. It was difficult during lockdown not to be able to do some physical exercise. I was doing some walking, but that's not the same thing. But for me, the great thing was, was the challenge. Because last December, when I started the training, I probably could only have swum five or six lengths to the pool without stopping. So the, the challenge was following a program, setting a target. Uh, and I got advice from a, from a swimming coach who's, who's in UCC at the moment. He's a student of mine. Fantastic help to me. And um, so like being able to, if you like, tick all the boxes each week, be on target with my training. And like, that was my focus. Quite frankly, the race was months ahead. I wasn't worried about the race. I was focused on, on the preparation for the race. Another thing that's gone into to lockdown is schooling college work in the traditional sense uh, i know you had been lecturing in the area of uh, sports psychology canis um going forward looking at the autumn will you be back back in in regular action will you be delivering courses online what's the plan well i lecture part-time in ucc uh and i do a few modules um i do um sports psychology coaching theory and coaching practice on the pe degree at ucc uh, obviously, we, we will be impacted. Well, uh, college will start three weeks later. We hope to start on the 20th of September. So I'll be back, hopefully, doing my lectures then. What we don't know is exactly how much will have to be done online and how much can be done in the classroom. Now, luckily, some of the modules we do is, is in a sports hall. And already we break the group of 50 into 225s. So with a group of 25, it's possible for, for uh, social distancing in a sports hall. So that's possible. But I'm not sure how the classroom stuff is going to work out. I also run a course in Douglas Community School, which is essentially sports psychology for coaches. It's a course I've been running for about 12 years now, and I love it. I get, I get coaches from lots of different sports who come. 
I, I don't know if that's going to start this year because you know we're still in the dark with how secondary schools are going to cope. There's a company called Afresh as well. I know you were telling me about those. Uh, talk to me a bit about your role with Afresh, what exactly it is you do. Well, Afresh are a well-being company who target courses and workshops at organisation. So over the past um, 12 years, I've done a lot of work with the likes of the banks on areas such as diet, exercise, sleep, dealing with stress, preparation um, preparation for change in, in your working life. So I'd normally do over the course of the past 12 years, one or two workshops per week. I see. No, there's none of that going on at the moment, obviously. No, there is some well-being going on uh, online. But I think, again, well-being is one of those areas that tr- the traditional structure of those courses will probably change. So we, we don't know how that's going to pan out. What is it that makes you tick, would you say? What motivates you, Canis? Um, I suppose um, I like to challenge myself. I like to be busy and I like to study. So over the course of my life, I've always been studying one thing or another. So um, I didn't go to college full time um, when I left school at 17. But I went back at at nighttime in in, in my 20s and I did another course in my 30s. I did my master's in my 40s. And at the moment, I'm studying Spanish. So I like to stay busy with stuff. Uh, I also like to be uh, active in, in terms of going. I go, I go and watch a lot of sport naturally, watch my clients compete. But I love to stay busy and, and I still have 30 years ahead of me. So I, I have a lot of other targets to achieve along the way. I'm glad to hear that. It's lovely to hear positivity and uh, you're constantly upskilling, which is, which is great. I think that's essential because um, um, often here we hear of certain people um, in certain sports who play at a high level and they retire and they get appointed as coaches. Well, the job of playing is a totally different job to the job of coaching. So for me, coach education is a very important part of the process. So I've always, as a coach, looked to go to workshops and seminars and keep developing my coaching to be the best that I can. You are from Dublin originally, but you're, you're based predominantly in Cork. You've lectured here, you've studied here. What is it you love most about this part of the, the country, seeing as it's the, the real capital, Canis, as we call it, <laughs> the southern capital? Well, first of all, I love the people of Cork. Um, obviously, the people of Cork slag, slag dubs nonstop. Um, I'm well able for slagging, so I have no problem with that. Uh, I love the, the pride with which um, a Cork person uh, wears the red jersey. It's different in Dublin. Dublin is a big international, very cosmopolitan city with, with lots of you know, different people from different counties and different countries. It's different to Cork. I much prefer Cork in the sense that it's, it's small enough to be intimate, and it's big enough to be a city. So there's still lots to do here. And for me, the great thing is that pretty much 20, 25 minutes in any direction from my house, I'm into the country. Like where I lived in Dublin, some directions an hour and a half it would take to, to see a green field, you know. So I much prefer living in Cork. Is there a book or a podcast you'd recommend maybe, which maybe ties in with the area of sports psychology? Well, um, there's two books I'd recommend. First book I'd recommend is a book called Being Happy. It's by um, Andrew Matthews. I love it because it's a short book, only six chapters, no big words, and lots of illustrations. Very easy book to read, and it's a phenomenal book. And I'd make it compulsory on on leaving cert courses in schools if if I was the Minister for Education. Phenomenal book. In terms of sports psychology, there's many, many, many good books. But one I like, Jim Murphy, called Inner Excellence. Okay. Uh, despite the name, Jim Murphy is an American. Um, 
so inner excellence it's a great read now in terms of podcasts there's lots of very very good ones in fairness at the moment but one i do like is by dan abrahams and it's called a sport psych show now while he covers sports psychology it's actually more about coaching and he, he brings on lots of coaches and lots of sports psychologists. But it's, it's a fascinating, um, fascinating listen to. And there's lots of options. You can pick people that you like. I look forward to checking those out. Listen, Canis, thanks a million. Really enjoyed the chat. It's fascinating stuff. And uh, best wishes for the future. That's great. Thank you very much. And the best of luck. Thanks, Jordan.